Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have our second Q&A episode over the last couple of weeks. And here, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts will discuss Jim Jordan and his influence, a couple of theology and Bible-related questions, and finally, they'll discuss works and authors that they find themselves returning to often. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. Uh, James B. John and Jeff Myers, again, are away for a while. Uh, James is teaching our uh, Judges workshop starting on Saturday, and uh, he's devoting his time to that. And we'll return to the podcast, and we'll resume the book of Daniel when he's able to return. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure everything gets recorded and edited. We're doing some special podcasts episodes uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, the last episode was a Q&A session, not questions and answers, but question and answers. One question with lots of different answers. This time we hope to get through a few more than just one, one and one-tenth of a question. Uh, we'll do another Q&A today, and then we're going to do a couple of interviews over the next few weeks. Uh, one with Dustin Messer, who's writing a book for our Theopolis Explorations series that uh, is developing the idea of a micro-Christendom, the idea of churches cooperating with public authorities in local areas to address uh, local concerns. Uh, And then we'll also have an interview with Chris Coe, who has been working on a study of the Divine Council and interacting with the work of Michael Heiser and others. Uh, And we'll be talking to him about his ongoing research on that topic in a few weeks. Look for those in the coming weeks. And today we're going to Uh, do a series of hopefully shorter questions that we can get through more than just one or two. Uh, A few questions came in from somebody who's asking about uh, Jim Jordan's work and his influence on us and where we think, uh, where we think his, uh, where would his star be in 10 years is one of the questions that's asked. Um, One of the questions is what is the most helpful or profound thing you've learned from James Jordan in the realm of practical life? Uh, And I would have to say that the thing that, uh, the book that most uh, benefited me as uh, in terms of Christian living is his uh, recently published book, From Bread to Wine. It's been, that book was circulating in different forms for uh, a decade and a half or more before it got published by Athanasius a year or two ago. Uh, but what Jim is able to do in that book is to show how, um, he, it's a book about sacramental theology in part. It's about a book about the Eucharist, From Bread to Wine. Uh, it's a book about uh, the history of the world, but it's also a book about uh, Christian biography and about human life. And the, the the fact that we go through a series of crisis moments in life, he goes through the patriarchs and shows that uh, Abraham, for example, has a crisis moment at, at different points in his life. And at each crisis moment, uh, he's broken open, uh, and then he moves on to a greater season of maturity. Uh, Jim is using his priest-king-prophet paradigm throughout that book. And he's also using, of course, the imagery of bread to wine. So you have the breaking of the bread, the the, the baking of the bread, uh, and the breaking of the bread to distribute and feed others, and then the breaking of the bread opening up the possibility of uh, outpouring ourselves uh, as uh, joy-giving wine. 
So that paradigm was really helpful for me to make in making sense of the pattern and the and the shape of my own life as I went through various periods of my life from young adulthood where I got married fairly young and starting having kids fairly young uh, to the point where I'm uh, a, a father of adult children uh, and uh, my my career as a as a pastor and theologian following a similar kind of trajectory. What Jim gives you is is a way of thinking about those and particularly thinking about what we think of as the negative parts of those experiences uh, and how those are actually incorporated into the, the maturation that, uh, that God is working in us. My thoughts will be very similar. I think perhaps one of the strongest aspects of Jim's work is his recovery of the importance of time. That's something that's a feature of his theology more generally. I think a lot of Reformed theology particularly has tended to neglect time. Um, Our theology tends to work within static theological structures. And even when it's dealing with time, things like covenant orders and um, periods of time, um, it tends to project those into a spatialized frame and compare them in that way. Now, time, of course, is one of the greatest aspects of our own lives. Um, We live our lives as creatures of time. And so whether it's thinking about my personal lifespan and how things within that function within time, or thinking of myself relative to the generation that has preceded me or the generation that comes after me. That recovery of time has shockwaves, I think, for every aspect of Christian thought and practice. It's seen in liturgy, in liturgy not just being the concept of baptism or the Lord's Supper standing by themselves, but thinking about them as a as microcrons, things that represent passages or movements or uh, larger temporal realities and suspend us between those. For instance, baptism being something that connects me with the past baptism of Christ and his death, but also which anticipates his resurrection. I'm caught between times. Or thinking about the Lord's Supper in a similar way. And so that recovery of time whether within biblical theology, whether within liturgy, or within our understanding of our own lives and Christian discipleship, I think has been the greatest gain for me from studying Mm -hmm. the work of Jim Jordan. And in my practice, I think that is constantly playing into my thinking in ways that I don't always trace back to him, because it's so embedded in my thinking by this point that it's very hard to escape it. It gets into every single area. And I think that's one of the, that's why I think Jim's thought is so powerful. It teaches you how to think about things, not just what to think. And the recovery of time is an essential part of that. Yeah. Another question about Jordan's work. Uh, How do you see James Jordan's ministry leavening its way through the church? Where will his star be in 10 years? I don't make any predictions about 10 years, um, but I do think that there's been, we've been grateful for Theopolis to be a um, conduit to get Jim's work out to a wider public. I know that there are people who listen to our podcast and are have been introduced to Jim Jordan because of our podcast. Uh, we're putting out a, a weekly podcast of a lecture of Jim's. Uh, frequently, these are decades old but uh, still fresh and insightful and electrifying, and uh, especially for people who have never heard Jim before. And I I know that there are uh, more people listening to him now than there have been in the past, so we're really grateful for that. I do think that Jim's work has longevity, partly for the reasons that Alistair was 
describing, I think, also just his the depth of insight into scripture, which I think is unparalleled. I think he, he has longevity. I, would, I wouldn't think in terms of 10 years, but maybe centuries or millennia. And I often, with Jim, I often think of uh, the way that uh, Oregon Rosenstock Husey talks about uh, certain kinds of thinkers. Um, he uses, he uses a, a Jesus' image of the seed in John 12 as a, as a way of thinking about the pattern of history. The seed has to go into the ground and die uh, before it bears fruit. And Rosenstock Husey says, this is, this is the way that history works. Things go into the ground, they disappear and die, and then... At the moment when they're needed, they start sprouting from the ground. I can, you know, I can imagine somebody 200 years from now uh, doing a research project and coming across through new eyes in a in a dusty basement of a library somewhere, uh, and uh, suddenly getting awakened to a, a new way of reading the scriptures, and that sparks something uh, that, that that isn't being sparked in Jim's lifetime. I think that's the, uh, I think that's the. That's the pattern that I see with Jim. I think that he's he's going to have a long-lasting impact, but I don't think it's going to be uh, a massive impact in the immediate future. I see it more as um, germinating and gestating and maybe disappearing even for a time before it begins to bear its full full fruit. Something I've found striking in many contexts is seeing the way that a certain idea that someone has raised in even private contexts with certain key people can start to become part of a public conversation and everyone starts talking about it. Most of the people don't know where that idea has come from, but yet that idea was a seed placed by one person in a key place at a particular time speaking to other individuals. I think that will, in many respects, be the way that Jim's influence is felt. It won't necessarily be something that people point at and say, that's Jim Jordan. It will just be something that's leavened its way through so much evangelical and Christian thought more generally, that it will be hard to avoid the influence. And you'll notice it in all sorts of places, and you'll have a suspicion that that has come, if you follow it upstream, that that would lead back to Jim. But um, it won't necessarily be obvious, because the person won't know where where they picked that up. And in my experience, that effect can be incredibly powerful and it's interesting when you're thinking this person told me this to read this author five years ago and now everyone's talking about this Mm -hmm. and no one really knows where originally originally came from but i know i heard this person talking about it Mm -hmm. and now it's part of the conversation and i think jim will be like that many of his ideas have become so deeply part of people and part of the conversation more broadly and I think their influence will be felt in that way without him necessarily being recognized as the influence that he has, has actually been. Yeah. I think the other thing is that I see a lot of the influence and the impact of the sort of reading that Jim has been advancing in lots of different quarters. There's something in the air that I think makes people more receptive to this at the moment. People are seeing just how powerful this is at responding to some of the impasses, on the one hand, within more liberal biblical scholarship, but also, on the other hand, in evangelical biblical scholarship that often doesn't know what to do with biblical narrative, for instance. And so the more that these ideas get out there, I think they're finding more willing and ready ears at the moment than they would have done 
10, 20 years ago. Which which may be evidence for one of Jim's favorite ideas, which is R- Rupert Sheldrake's notion of morphic resonance. That there's a there's a kind of uh, species consciousness in animals. There's a consciousness that's shared by human beings. Uh, Sheldrake often points to examples of like you're describing, where suddenly something's in the air, and it's hard to trace exactly. Uh, you can't really do a genealogy and find where the first who was the first person who said X, but suddenly everybody's saying X. Uh, and um, it's, it seems, yeah, it seems like Jim has that kind of, that kind of effect. I think, I think too, just to, to round out the picture, I think one of the, one of the factors with Jim is that Jim has been somewhat controversial, uh, a controversial figure. I think there are people that know Jim's work and have read it and would be capable of acknowledging a debt to him who won't because of, uh, some of his uh, controversial associations and controversial positions that he's taken. So I think there's a, that factor that there's also the fact that Jim hasn't ever held in a standard mainstream kind of academic position. And so he's, he doesn't have a, he doesn't have an earned PhD. He hasn't had the, hasn't gone over the the hurdles and um, he hasn't passed the, doesn't have his union card of the PhD in order to have authority to speak in certain circles and so I think there's a uh, that's a that's another factor in why people might not uh, acknowledge his his importance. But I, I I agree with you, Alistair, that a lot of what Jim has said, things that I things that I learned uh, from him a long time ago, seem to be part of the part of the uh, general general patter these days. Let me uh, let me offer another sort of question. Um, this question is: Is there evidence internal to the Bible that teaches that the canon is closed? This could be a, a really big question, but I, I want to highlight just one aspect of it. I think, let me say, I'll say two aspects. One negative. I mean, people point to certain certain uh, kinds of proof texts to suggest the canon is closed. Uh, you know, when the perfect comes, then those that are partial are done away. That kind of, uh, that's often used as a proof text for saying that now that the, the, the perfect finished canon has come, the imperfect has, uh, the imperfect forms of revelation have ceased. Um those are debated. Uh, those may be persuasive in a certain kind of context. I think the the issue really has to do with the broad formation of the canon. If you look at the broad history of the canon, what you're looking at is a kind of punctuated equilibrium. It's not a it's not a slow growth where you have a trickle of books coming out, you know, uh, over the course of centuries. Instead, what you have is a cluster of books uh, being established as the canon for Israel uh, when they come out of Egypt another cluster of books that comes around the time of the establishment of the monarchy, another cluster of books that comes out in the late history of the monarchy, leading through the exile and into the post-exilic era, and then several hundred years later, another cluster of books that we know as the New Testament. Uh, We talk about the silent period between the end of the Old Testament and the end of the New Testament. A lot of people do. Um, But in fact, there are are so-called silent periods uh, all the way through the development of the canon. Uh, uh, there's a canon for uh, the, the Pentateuch is the canon for a while, or maybe the Hexateuch. Um, and then uh, there's another addition to the canon. So the question is not so much, do you have a proof text, but um, uh, is, there, is the coming of Jesus in the spirit, is that the, does that have the kind of finality that would ex- that we would, where we would expect this would be the final cluster of books that would come with the final act of God in human history? And I think everything in the New Testament tells us the answer is yes. 
Uh, obviously, there's a lot of history to go before the final judgment, but the the decisive thing has happened. There's not going to be another event of the same redemptive historical stature as the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. That's foundational for the rest of human history. And therefore, it's fitting that there's a cluster of books that mark that event and explain that event uh, that aren't superseded. To say that there's another cluster of books would be to say that there's going to be an event or set of events that supersedes the the events of the first century, which um, uh, I don't believe the New Testament gives us, us any reason to think that's going to happen. I think when we develop our doctrines of scripture, we can often do so in a way that is depending upon proof texts and is abstracted from the actual content of the scripture and the actual narrative that it tells. And when we look at the narrative, I think we can see that, first of all, scripture is itself an actor within God's redemptive history. It's not just a passive bystander or commentator. It's actually participating in the process. The other thing to notice is that the word of God changes over time. Um, The sort of word that was delivered to Israel under Moses is a rather different sort of thing from the Psalms or from a prophetic book or from a Pauline epistle. And as we go through the text, I think one of the things that we'll notice is a broad pattern of what is taking place is that the word is taking flesh. And so you have very much in the first giving of the law, it's a word that's in, that is inscribed upon tablets of stone. It's a word outside of people is addressed to them as an external word of authority. And they're supposed to meditate upon this and thereby learn wisdom. But then when you get to the wisdom literature, there's a different sort of relationship to the word. You can think about the Proverbs. The Proverbs are not working in the same way as the Ten Commandments. The Proverbs require a mind that has been illuminated by God's truth, looking out into the world and then speaking concerning that world world with the illumination of the spirit of wisdom. Or you can think about the Psalms. The Psalms are not the external word of the law addressed and then the congregation saying amen to that, for instance. It's the word that has taken up residence in the heart through memory, through delight, through desire, through commitment, through identification. And so what we'd find in the law, for instance, in a second person addressed, you shall not, or something like that, takes the form of an expression of the desire of the psalmist, that this is what he wills. And now this is bubbling up from within. It's conscripted the heart and the desires. And it's a fulfillment of the law in the sense that the law called for loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And so that's something that's coming to pass within the Psalms and elsewhere. In the prophets, the word takes hold of someone and conscripts them as its mouthpiece. You can think about the way that the word of the Lord is placed upon the lips of someone like Jeremiah or the lips of, of Isaiah are touched with the burning coal from the altar. Or maybe think about the way that Ezekiel has to eat the book. The book and the word becomes part of them and they become living embodiments of what that word means. And also those who are not merely expressing the authority of a word outside of them, but those who are authorized by that so that Jeremiah, for instance, can pull up and um, build and plant kingdoms or tear down and build up. There is this deeper and deepening of the relationship between humanity and the word. And then in the New Testament, we see that come to the climax in the word made flesh. And the word made flesh, not merely in Christ taking human flesh, but 
in the way that by the work of Christ, we become epistles of Christ, as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And so what I think we're seeing there is the way that the scripture itself is moving in that natural progression from the external word outside to the word that's meditated and it's become a form of wisdom to the authorizing word that's been put upon our lips that we can act in terms of to the incarnate word in Christ and then by extension in his body. And what would come beyond that? I think that is the question that I think is, for me, one that really decides the question of the closing of the canon. There's nothing that really can eclipse Christ. Christ is the fulfillment and it's the realization of what the word was all, of God was always straining towards. When the word of God himself has come on the scene in person, what other word can eclipse that? What we have are the words bearing witness to Christ and his ministry. And then when that is borne witness to, you have at the end of Revelation, for instance, not adding to the words of the book. Now, I think in that sort of case, it's not just a proof text. It's something that's based upon the fullness of the revelation that has come through Christ as the word. And so anything added to that would be a detraction. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Uh, the one thing I would want to qualify or uh, just clarify is the that movement is not a movement away from Scripture as authoritative or Scripture as uh the 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 agent of the spirit to um, uh, to renew us to guide us and so on. So you could you could tell that uh, tell that storyline and and suggest that by the time we get to the New Testament, we've transcended the text of Scripture. That's not that wouldn't be the proper uh, conclusion to draw from that. But I think um, with that qualification, I think that movement is is there, and I think that's a that's a another angle for suggesting that it's really the shape of the whole Bible that gives us the leads us to the conclusion that the canon is closed. Let me let me go on to another question. Somebody asked about uh, Jeremiah 31, 22. I won't read the question. It was basically, what does this mean? Jeremiah 31, 22 says, well, I'll verse, read verse 21 just to set some context. Set up for yourself road marks, place for yourself guideposts, direct your mind to the highway, the way uh, by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel. Return to these cities, these your cities. How long will you go from here, the, here and there? O faithless daughter, for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. And Alistair, you said you have something useful to say about that, because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think it can be helpful to go back to the preceding chapter um, in verses 5 and 6. Um, I think we have maybe a clue to what's taking place. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labour? Why has every face turned pale? I think you're seeing the same thing. Um, the women are encircling the fighting men when the fighting men have become like pregnant women. It's a statement about how the nation is in a state of deep distress and this is an anomalous situation where the women are actually having to protect the men because the men have no power to protect themselves. It's a statement of how low the power of the nation has been brought as a result of its sin and the Lord's judgment. Great. Thank you. That there, That's resolved. What other questions might we have about that? Another question. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. 
Peter writes, uh, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And the question has to do with how is that statement of Peter's in 2 Peter 1 different from theosis? Um, and and in, order to, in order to clarify the question, I would have to I would find out what the writer intends by the word theosis, because um, that can have a, a more specific meaning referring to a particular a particular kind of doctrine of deification, or it can be a term that refers more generally to the doctrine of deification. I'm going to take it as a question about the, the general idea of deification. Peter says that we are partakers of the divine nature. Uh, and I think that is what, that's one of the passages that the, new, that, that, that the church has used as the basis for talking about deification. Uh, and that, that talk about deification, we don't use it much in reformed circles we don't use it much, I don't think, in Protestant evangelical circles generally, but it's it's it really is the Catholic inheritance of the church. You, you can find uh, writers in virtually every tradition who have some notion of deification. Uh, they differ among themselves in various ways, but it's not just the Orthodox or the Catholics that have a doctrine of deification. Carl Moser uh, has written a number of essays on on this and has and has made has made this case that. Uh, you find you find certain kinds of idea, ideas of deification in Wesley. You find a certain kind of idea of deification even in Calvin and the Reformed tradition. Uh, however much that might not be part of our uh, our day to day lingo, uh, but the the idea is never in any of these traditions. It's never that uh, human beings simply get absorbed into divinity uh, and that we become uh, equal to God. Somehow the creator creature distinction is is overcome and there is nothing but God and human beings have just been, uh, has, have completely been absorbed. That's not, that's never been what the church has taught about theosis or deification. It's always about glorification. It's about uh, renewal and perfection of the image of God. Uh, it's about becoming infinitely more, uh, uh, eternally more, more godlike. We're created uh, as images of God. We're created godlike. We grow in godlikeness through our lives by the power of the spirit. That's uh, what Peter is immediately talking about. It seems he's talking about kind of a, an ethical or moral growth and maturation. Uh, in glory, we're going to continue to grow in God-likeness for all eternity. We're never going to get to the point where we have, we completely exhibit all of God, uh, all of God's character in who we are. Uh, that's not possible. And so there's an, an eternal, uh, there's an eternal process of deification that will go on forever. So, um, but that, as I say, that's part of the, that's part of the inheritance of the church Catholic, not just the Catholic church or the Orthodox church. Uh, and it's something we should talk more about because the, the new Testament does talk a lot about, uh, it talks, it usually talks about it on the heading of glorification, but I think that's the same notion that we are becoming more and more, we more and more exhibit the glory of God. Uh, we more and more exhibit God likeness in, in our own cre- creaturely way. And that godly likeness is very much a result of our it's a result of our knowledge of God. You can think about some of the statements, for instance, in um our relationship with Christ and the way that He is the image of the invisible God, and as we reflect His glory, we become like God to that extent. We can think also of places like um 
first John, I think it's chapter five, verse three or something where he talked, was it three, verse five, where he talks about the way that when we see him, Christ, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. There's a transforming vision in which we take on the character of that which we are seeing. Now, we don't become Christ in the same way as he is. There are incommunicable attributes of God that theologians talk about that need to be clearly remembered at this sort of time. But we do take on the glory of God. We Our glorification is not some thing that happens in detachment from God's glory. Rather, it's a reflection of his glory. And it's a result of our knowledge of the glory of God as it is seen in Jesus Christ. And so I think this is something that whether we call it deification or theosis or not, it should be part of our theological framework and part of how we understand um, what it means to be saved. I think that element of glorification has often been neglected, perhaps along with it, things like what does the transfiguration mean and how does transfiguration and that, that event and also that reality as it's played out within the life of the church um, or in the story of scripture how does that help us to understand the destiny of our destiny as the people of God and also the center of human history, the revelation of Christ, of God's glory in Jesus Christ? Yeah, one other bibliographical note. Um, Michael Gorman has written a couple of books on, he's a New Testament, a Catholic New Testament scholar. He's written a couple of books on Paul and deification, and he's trying to show that this is a theme in uh, Paul's letters. So you might uh, consult that. Uh, one last question uh, for this session. This is about our preferred Bible translation. What do we use for study and devotion? And then also, uh, what are some of the books that uh, do we find ourselves rereading? I picked up a New American Standard Bible uh, at my the first Presbyterian church I attended. Uh, and it's been through a couple of different covers, but it's still the same innards. And I've had it since the... Uh, since the early 1980s, so I've been. This is a this is an old version of the New American Standard Bible. It's the Bible that I know what part of the page uh, different texts are on. So I use it. I, I use this one when I teach and when I read. Uh, as far as books that I reread constantly, obviously, I'll I'll say the pious thing, the Bible. But I also, um, as far as things that I go back to, things that continually inspire me. We've talked about Jim Jordan a lot on this podcast, and I constantly go back to Jim's work, particularly through new eyes uh, to um, refresh my memory and to refresh my imagination and soul. John Milbank, my doctoral supervisor, his initial book, Theology and Social Theory, uh, is a go-to book for me on a lot of issues. I find uh, uh, not only a lot of that book is critical, but I find that there's some uh, really interesting constructive theology that's embedded in that. And I find particularly the last part of Theology and Social Theory uh, and uh, then his discussion of Augustine and, and, and in relation to postmodernism has been extremely helpful for me to try to sort through things. Augustine, uh, I've spent probably the most time in um, on Christian teaching over the years. I spent a good bit of time in uh, City of God, uh, spent a good bit of time in Confessions, uh, and some uh, and a good bit of time in Augustine's treatise on the Trinity, but as far as uh, patristic writers, Augustine is a key one. I'll read the Lubach's uh, various books. I realized a number of years ago how much of my 
my kind of theological agenda has been shaped by my reading of Delubeck, um, my uh, interest in ecclesiology, my interest in sacramental theology, my interest in um, a medieval interpretation of scripture and typological interpretation of scripture. Those are all themes that are developed in various ways uh, in Delubeck, uh, largely from a historical perspective, but I find his, his work inspiring. Uh, and this just to get outside of um, theology, I, the uh, poet artist that I've spent the most time with over the years is Shakespeare. And I uh, find that um, Shakespeare is inspiring in all kinds of theological ways, uh, as well as in just the sheer uh, wonder of uh, of his poetry. But I, I found some really, I found theological insight in his plays that I didn't just confirm things that I found elsewhere, but actually brought things uh, to my attention that I hadn't thought of before. As for Bible translations, um, for me, I grew up using the New King James Version, which I think has many of the advantages of the King James Version, which I've always has always been my favorite in terms of hearing the sound of the King James Version. It just is written for the ear in the way that most modern translations are not. The New King James, I think, is a, a better translation that retains many of the strengths of the King James. Um, in terms of my daily use, I use the ESV for the most part. Um, that's largely because most of the people who are listening to my reflections are using, it's the most popular among my listeners. And so I tend to depend upon that one. Um, I find that listening to the Bible in a number of different versions can be helpful. Um, and so often I'm reading versions alongside each other. I'll be reading a more literal version and then I'll be reading um looking at the original text along with that and seeing what things I notice that they notice. In terms of books that I reread, probably, realistically, for me, it would be mostly people commenting on scripture because they are constant conversation partners. I'm always returning to the text itself. And so those principal conversation partners on specific books are people that I'll be returning to along with the biblical text itself. And there'll be certain commentators that are staples whenever whenever you're approaching the text, you'll be engaging with them. And even if you disagree with them on a regular basis, you find that they are an important part of your mental furniture by a certain point, that they are a voice within your head and you're trying to imagine how they would read the text. So for me, perhaps one of the greatest influences on my thinking about scripture early on, along with James Jordan, was someone like N.T. Wright. And so perhaps the book of his that I return to the most is Jesus and the Victory of God. For reading the New Testament, I've just found that book to be incredibly stimulating and challenging. I've developed more differences with it over time and diverged from its interpretations in several respects. But I've never found myself um, not being challenged and stimulated as I've returned to it with the text in one hand and right in the other. There will be other commentators along with that. I find someone like Craig Keener is someone I use a lot, um, particularly for his rigor in thinking about the sociological, historical and other background. If you read through his commentary on Acts, which I've been looking at 
over the last year at various points, and I've read through most of it. It is probably, I've not seen a bigger commentary in my life. It's absolutely massive. But the amount that you can learn about the ancient world of Paul's day and the day, the period of the Acts, and also from the field of um, commentators is immense. And so I love returning to a book like that on numerous occasions. In terms of theology, Calvin is someone I read very, very on early on in my theological journey. And practically every year, I'll return to him on numerous occasions. Um, his commentaries more nowadays than the Institutes, but I'll often read the Institutes sections of it, or even the whole thing I've read on several occasions since I first read it. Along with that, I've found for my doctoral work, um, Louis-Marie Chauvet, um, Symbol and Sacrament was a very important work as a conversation partner. I ended up disagreeing with a lot of what he said, but he's one of the most stimulating people to read on the subject of the sacraments. And I'm still thinking in conversation with him. So if I'm doing any work on the sacraments, I will return to his work at some point or other as part of that. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.